Uh, my name's Chad. I'm one of the elders here at North Glencoe. Um, I serve with a, with a good group of men. One of our own, Tom Harrison, is down in Fort Myers, Florida. He's working down there after the storm has gone through. He's serving as an emergency chaplain with the State Board of Missions. And uh, they're working to meet needs of people who are going back and finding that there is nothing left. Um, if you've been following him on Facebook or, or anything like that, you've seen some of the pictures of the devastation down there. Um, I talked with him this morning a little bit, and um, one of the things that he asked for us to pray is uh, that we would pray for the team that's down there because, of course, they're getting tired. It's hot. Um, where they're staying has power, um, but where they're going, there's, there's nothing. And um, it's towards the end of their time. They'll be coming back on Tuesday right now. And, uh, of course, everybody kind of gets fussy towards the end of a trip, even adults, especially adults. Who are we all kidding? And, um, <laughs> and he just asked for prayer for the team that God would just sustain them. So as we open up this morning uh, to start the message, I think that's a good spot to start. Uh, let's remember that in prayer together. Dear God, our Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and, and God, we give you thanks for who you are. God, we give you thanks that you, took, you take such good care of us. God, you, you are not surprised by our uncertainty. God, you, you welcome and desire our desperation because it drives us to you. You are the only source of security. God, you are the only source of goodness in our life. Lord, we thank you for all the mercy and the grace that you give us and we just cry out for that mercy afresh and anew this morning. God, we lift up that team as they travel back home. And between now and then, God, we just ask you to give them your strength. God, that they would be the hands and feet of your son, Jesus. God, that there would be your name being lifted high in this tragedy. That your son, Jesus, would be lifted high and that men would be drawn to him. Thank you, God, for who you are and your great, great love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're jumping back into the book of Luke. The way we work here at North Glencoe is during the summer we preach from the Old Testament because it's a, it's a narrative, a big chunk of the Old Testament, and that's a fancy word that just means story. And we have people that take vacations during the summer, and you can, you can go and come back and catch up on the story. We've been in 1 Samuel all this summer. We finished up with that around 1 Samuel 24, and we, we preached from uh, Psalm 57 last week where David is in the cave. And I think that's a great jumping off point for us to go back to the book of Luke. Because Luke is this physician and Luke writes to this guy named Theophilus. And we know this because that's the way Luke opens up his gospel. And we know exactly why Luke wrote his gospel. Because he tells Theophilus why he wrote to him. In Luke 1.24, he says that he's written these things that you... And he means Theophilus, but we get the benefit of this. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So I'm going to ask a rhetorical question. And I teach fourth grade for a living. And if I use a word like rhetorical, I get this calf looking at a new gate stare back at me like what rhetorical what what because that's not a fourth grade word so rhetorical means I already know the answer to this question I'm going to ask you this morning if you were beat down I'm going to ask you this morning if you are facing a trial I'm going to ask you this morning if you're sick if you have someone in your family who is sick 
I'm going to ask you if, if you are leaving here today and you have some need that's got to be met. I know the answer to that question because all the questions, all the answers to those questions for me are yes. That's why it's, it's, it's rhetorical. The answer for us all in this room is yes. Well, Luke is for us. Luke chapter 8 is for us. We finished off there last fall, and, and what happens in Luke 8 is we get these stories. It's one right after the other. And, and Jesus has gone over to the country of the Gerasenes, which is across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. And he goes there, and on the way, a storm arises. And the disciples flip out in this storm. And they wake Jesus up, and they tell him, we're going to die. And you can kind of hear Jesus yawn a little bit in it as he rebukes the waves. And then before he goes back to sleep, he looks at him and says, where's your faith? And then he's at back to sleep. And that leaves the disciples standing with their mouths open, wondering, who is this that he can say, stop, and the wind listens to him? And as soon as he arrives over in the country of the Gerasenes, this man comes out of the tombs and he's naked as a jaybird. I hope I can say that. He's naked as a jaybird. He is crazy. He is possessed with so many demons that they call themselves legion. And he casts them out. And the people from the town come out and see this man clothed and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. And they promptly kick Jesus out of town. They tell him they want nothing to do with any of this. And so Jesus commissions the first missionary to the Gentiles. He looks at this guy and he says, you can't go with me. You've got to stay here and tell everybody what God did for you. And the guy does. And Jesus comes back and there is this crowd waiting for him. That's where we picked up. I'm not going to reread the story that we just heard, but I want, I want to point out some things in this story because there is some really cool stuff. And then I want to give you two takeaways for how this story impacts us. Why it matters to us today nearly 2,000 years later. So Jesus comes back. This crowd is waiting on him. And this crowd is huge. And they're, they're pressing up against him. And, and just like over in the garrisons, a guy comes up to him. But this time he's not possessed. This time it's Jairus. And Jairus is the leader of the synagogue. He was the guy who put together the worship services at the synagogue. He was the guy everybody would have wanted to be like. He had hit the pinnacle in... First Baptist Church of Capernaum. He had gotten as high as you could get. Everybody wanted to be him. He was the guy who had it all together. And it says that he comes up and he falls on his knees before Jesus. Now, Luke tells us who he is and what he does because all the way through Luke, there's this little murmur that started because Jesus is ticking people off who are in religious authority. And this little murmur starts because he's eroding their power base. The crowd is huge around Jesus and they are angry. And, and the murmuring is starting. They, they, they want to know who this guy is. When he stands up and he, he preaches in a synagogue and he reads from the book of Isaiah at the beginning of Luke, the, they, they ask, isn't this Joseph's kid? What, what, what good's come out of Nazareth? And then it, it keeps on. And, and Jesus just picks at the wound. Because he's healing people and he's healing them on the Sabbath and he's angering people. There is one point in Luke where Jesus is preaching. And I don't want to take your homework away from you, but it's good stuff. Jesus is preaching and they lower this paralytic down in front of him. And, and Jesus is preaching and, and the paralytic's there in front of him. And Jesus looks at the guy and he meets his greatest need. He looks at the guy and the first thing he tells him is that his sins are forgiven. 
And they go nuts. Who is this? He's uttering blasphemy. Why is he doing it? Nobody can, can forgive sins except God. And then to prove his point, just to prove his point, Jesus meets his secondary need. And he says, get up and walk. And the guy does. And it's all on the Sabbath. And this murmuring starts. And later on in the book of Luke, the murmuring's going to get louder and louder and louder until at the end it's going to end in a shout of people saying to crucify Jesus. But right now it's a murmur. And Jairus has come up to him and he's fallen on his knees. And why this matters is because all of Jairus' peers would have been the ones who were murmuring. And Jairus falls on his knees before Jesus and begs him to come to his house because 12 years ago, Jairus and his wife had a little girl. We don't have anybody around here at North Glencoe who's had a kid recently, so I may need to wait a minute. We do have a lot of babies around here, so I think I can, we, we know what that means. We've got that taken care of. We know the joy that comes from that. Twelve years ago, Jairus and his wife have had a little girl, and the way Luke words it, and this story's also in Matthew and Mark, we can kind of figure out that not only is this his only daughter, but it's his only child. And for 12 years, he's raised this little girl. And in this culture, she's approaching the age for marriage. So where things should just be starting, her life is just getting off and running. Now she lies dying. And Jairus is desperate. Have you been there? Have you been to that point where God has removed every option from the table? Jairus is because he doesn't care what his friends think. He doesn't care what his peers would say to him. He goes to Jesus and he begs for him to come. And Jesus goes. And on his way, they're in this huge crowd. I want you to think Disney plus Bryant Denny plus Jordan Hare. It's all, everybody's hot. They're bumping into one another. You just need some space. My mama used to tell me during the summer, she would say, son, love me from a distance. She didn't want me to touch her. Well, everybody's touching everybody else. And the crowd is moving. Jesus is having to move slow. Have you ever tried to get over the Megan Bridge in the afternoon? You need to get over. You've got that frustration. i got to be this place at this time. Well, Jairus is in that situation. But there's this woman. And she is the total opposite of Jairus. Total opposite. He's a guy, she's a girl. Twelve years ago, when Jairus' world lit up, her world started to go dim because she started hemorrhaging. She started bleeding. And there was nothing she could do. She couldn't stop it. Luke's, Luke's a doctor. And I don't know if you've noticed, but doctors have each other's backs. And Luke just says that no one could heal her. Matthew and Mark say she suffered at the hands of many physicians. And she spent all of her money. And no one could heal her. But she's in this crowd... And she's, she's got her head down. She doesn't want to be noticed. She, she really can't be noticed because according... I don't want to take your homework from you, but in Leviticus. Back in the book of Leviticus, I believe it's a Leviticus. It's either 2519 or 1925. Would you forgive me because I've got those numbers flipped. She's ceremonially unclean. She is cut off. She can't go to church. She can't go to synagogue. She can't go to temple. 
She can't, everything she touches, all of her clothes, all of her furniture, any body she touches is unclean. Just judging, now this is just Chad, so this is just for two cents right here. Just for me, noticing how many times Jesus talks about divorce, it's very probable if this woman was married that after 12 years, her husband has quietly divorced her. She has nothing left. She is desperate. She's gone through 12 years of hell. And she has in her mind that if she would just touch Jesus, that she will be healed. And she pushes through, and she reaches out, probably grabs those tassels that they had to have on the edge of their garments. And immediately, Jesus stops. And he says, who touched me? And everybody denies it. I didn't touch you, Jesus. What are you talking about? I didn't, no, I don't know. And then Peter talks. I love Peter early in the Gospels. Because when Peter talks early in the Gospels, usually it's just to open his mouth to change feet. And Peter says, what do you mean, Jesus? Look at this crap. This is the Chad translation. He, he says, this, what do you mean? Everybody's bumping into you. What do you mean who touched you? And then I want you to notice why Jesus knew somebody touched him. He said, I perceive that power... Excuse me, that power has gone out from me. That still happens today. Every move of God that you have in your life, He knows about. There is nothing that is accidental, He knows it. And He says, I know that power went out from me. And this lady is terrified, she's trembling. And she speaks up and she tells the story of the last 12 years. Now, I can just imagine that this would get Jairus' attention. 12, 12 years? 12 years? That's how my little girl is. 12 years? You've been going through this for 12 years? And she tells how Jesus has healed her. And immediately after, Jesus says something really, really cool to her. He looks at her and he says, Daughter... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Do you know there is no other recorded time when Jesus looks at any woman anywhere and calls her daughter. Don't let that get by you. Daughter, there's a relationship that's been formed here. We want to spend so much time on your faith has made you well. Look at the bookends. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The God of the universe, the word, the logos, the beginning, the alpha, the omega says, go in peace with me. He's met her need. And at that moment, somebody busts through and they tell Jairus, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Leave the teacher alone. And Jesus looks at Jairus and he gives him a shopping list. He says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. You don't tell somebody to not be afraid unless you know they're afraid. He doesn't get on to him for his fear. He says, don't be afraid, don't fear, just believe. Son, you are this close. I'm going to do what I said I would do. And they go. 
Now, the funeral would have started because back in this time, Jews did not embalm bodies. So there wasn't a long break between the, between the time of death and the funeral. The death would happen and the funeral would be really quick. So they get there and the funeral is going on. There's mourners. They're weeping. They're wailing. They would have torn their clothes. There were rules that they had for how big the hole had to be and where the hole was going to be. And they were tearing clothes, weeping and hollering. And Jesus says, don't weep. She's just asleep. And they laugh at him. They miss the fact that Jesus just took their conception of death and turned it inside out. It's not permanent to him. To him, it's just as simple as waking up a kid from a nap. And those of us with all those babies around here know how easy it is to wake up a kid from a nap. Shush, don't talk. The kid's asleep. You've just gotten them down. Hush! And Jesus says, she's just asleep. And they laugh at him. And Jesus runs everybody off. And he gets a small number of folks to go with him. There's a a couple of firsts here. This is also the first time that Jesus pulls out Peter, James, and John. Peter, the fighter. John, the disciple that he loved. And James, the disciple who's going to become the first martyr. And he pulls them and Jairus and his wife And they go inside and they shut the door behind them. And Jesus walks up and takes her by the hand. And he says, child, arise. And she does. And then something really cool happens. He looks at this couple. And he first says, go get her something to eat. Because she's hungry. Go, Go do that. And then he says, don't tell anybody. Now, when you look at that, you got to wonder, why did he say this? And the text doesn't give us, it's not definite. So, again, this is one of those things you can hold in an open hand. If you disagree with me, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I hope we can still go out and eat lunch together. He looks at him and he says, don't tell anybody about this. And I think, I heard a guy say this, that, that it was for this. He says, you know, I mean, look. Everybody that's outside that was part of the professional mourners, they're going to know this little girl is alive again. They all knew she was dead. They're going to see her alive. She's going to be out in the front yard playing with Barbies in a minute. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Because he's looking at them and saying, look, it's just me and my friends here. And why don't y'all just sit still for a minute? And why don't you just enjoy this reunion? Because you thought she was gone. And she's right here. And everybody's going to find out about it soon enough. Just relax. Take it easy. Enjoy. And eat. That sounds like my Jesus. And that's the story. Well, what can we get from that? What does that mean to me when I go back to work tomorrow morning and I've got that student or students that that I just can't reach? I've got those co-workers that I love a whole lot, but sometimes they're tough to deal with. What is it going to mean to me when I've got a boss who is breathing down my neck and just seems like they live to make my life miserable? What is it going to mean to me when my daughter is sick again? Well, I've got two takeaways for you today. And the first is this. 
Fear is real. Pain is legitimate. And desperation is the proper response. Desperation is okay. In fact, we're not near desperate enough. We all know this guy named John Newton. You may not know him by name, but you know his work. Because you've all sang the song, Amazing Grace, right? John Newton wrote some other really, really good stuff. There's one that he wrote that we just don't sing. He wrote this. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he that taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. That's where we are. We're almost to despair. Paul says that so many times. We were so torn up, we were almost despairing. Understand that despair is a door that is shut, it is barred, and it will not open. There is no hope. Desperation is that door close. You can see the crack of light behind it. And there's nothing you can do to open it, but you feel like it might. He goes on. I hoped that in some favorite hour, at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sin and give me rest. Isn't that what we pray? Isn't that what we expect? Instead of this... He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more than this, more, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Newton is real. All the way back in the 1700s, Newton was real. And he says this. He says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ... From self and pride to set you free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy. That thou may find thine all in me. How real is that? That's what it's there for. You know, the Bible is full. We could start at the beginning and we could look at the number of desperate people that God uses for His glory and it is innumerable. In Hebrews, they call it the hall of faith. But I'll just be honest with you. and You, you may not be this way. I don't learn from people doing it right. I stink at learning from doing it right. I learn the best when I've done it wrong. And there are plenty of folks that have done it wrong in God's word. Plenty of folks who don't live that desperate life. Jesus talks to them. 
In fact, it's a church that he talks to. It happens in Revelation. In Revelation 3, he says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know the wor- your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, listen to the lack of desperation in this. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We've lost our taste for discipline. It's not supposed to be pleasant because we're not hardwired to live the right way. So because he loves us, he disciplines us. And he tells the church at Laodicea, that's why you've got so much going on. It's because I love you. And he says, be zealous. Be desperate and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone here hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Don't whitewash your pain. It's not punishment. I don't... I I, want to say I don't punish my children. I want to say that I... Discipline my children. There's a huge difference between the two. Punishment is just me getting some sick pleasure out of taking something from them. Some sick pleasure on seeing them hurt. And that's not there. That shouldn't be there. I need to discipline my child. And that's what God does with us. Take that pain and let it make you desperate. That's where we need to be. Any time in God's word when we weren't desperate, we fouled it up seriously. Just look at Genesis. There wasn't anything wrong in the Garden of Eden. Nothing. And that's where we fell. So that, that thorn, that, that thing that is keeping you on your knees, thank God for it. Because we need to be more Desperate. It's not a lack of your faith. It's there to increase faith. Last week, when Tom was preaching out of Psalm 57, David cries out in the middle of Psalm 57, he says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. That's because he was in the back of a cave hiding from a man who wanted to kill him. There is nothing like that to drive us to our knees. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers... In our pleasure. He speaks in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. Pain is a terrible tool. But it's the only thing. 
Lewis says, that will let the flag of truth be planted in the rebel's soul. So don't be ashamed of that desperation. Understand that's why it's there. I know it doesn't make it any easier. It sure didn't make it any easier for Jairus or for that woman who was going through what she went through for 12 years. But God is faithful. And that leads us to the second thing I want you to take away from today. The second thing is this, that Jesus is Lord. In Luke, we see he calms the storm. He's the Lord of creation. We see him cast out the legion. He is the Lord of the devil. We see him prove that he is the Lord over disease and he is the Lord over death. The most desperate I have ever been is having gotten back from a mountaintop experience. Two days later, standing in my mom's dining room, holding her while they wheeled my dad's dead body out on a gurney. And I would love to tell you that I stood there singing or that I stood there quoting scripture. But I just stood there and I cried because it hurt. But because Jesus is Lord, my dad got to experience what was in 1 Corinthians When Paul talks about the perishable, putting on imperishable, at that moment, my dad enjoyed the down payment that Jesus made on the cross. The sure down payment of his resurrection paid off for my dad. And that's why Paul could write, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over that desperation that you've got right now. The victory over the sins that we struggle with. The victory over that, that problem, that sin, that, that hurt, that heartache. It's been bought and paid for. And we see it today with eyes of faith. Not because of anything we've done. But because Jesus is Lord. And if he is Lord over nature. If he is Lord over the devil. If he is Lord over disease. If he is Lord over death. He is Lord over you. And that's why Paul could write in Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him that name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So I would ask you today. Do you know him? As we're landing this plane, as we're coming to a time of invitation, I would ask you today, do you know him? Because you're sitting with a room full of people who are going through the same desperation that you are going through. It's just their own special brand. It's their own private hurt. 
and they're going through it right there with you. And the only thing that makes it worthwhile, the only thing that made watching my little girl lose an eye, the only thing that made seeing my dad die, the only thing that made the first 18 years of my life being raised in a fundamentalist cult worth it is knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord over it all. And if you don't know him, come down here and get it done today. Maybe you're looking for a church home. You've already heard that we're kind of crazy here. I mean, they'll let somebody like me up here to talk. We would love to have you come and be in the fight with us. We would love to have you come and struggle with us in that holy desperation for Jesus who will meet every need. Let's pray. God, our Father, we come before you today, Lord, and we give you thanks. God, we give you thanks that there is not a tear that falls from our eyes, God, that you don't know about. God, there is not a pain that we go through. There is not a fear that we have that you haven't put there for us to come to you. God, we thank you for your faithfulness because it's scary. We thank you for your mercy because we know that you experienced it too. God, send your Holy Spirit. Give us mercy and grace and faith that we might trust you more. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.